This is The Every Lawyer, presented by the Canadian Bar Association. Hi, I'm Julia. Welcome, everybody. Uh, welcome at The Every Lawyer podcast. My guests today are Argavan Jeremy and Kyle Heidman. Kyle Heinemann is the head of the CBA Immigration Law Section, and he has been very generous with his time uh, since we had a technical, technical issue. issue last time, which caused to have to do this a second time. So, uh, Kyle, we really thank you for being such a good sport with us and for agreeing to record this podcast another time. My pleasure. Really happy to be on. And um, just an update in the intervening time, I'm now no longer the chair of the section. I'm now the immediate past chair, which is great news for me. (laughs) (laughs) Things change so fast. Okay, but that's very good. (laughs) So, very glad to hear. So, who's the new chair? So, Lisa Middlemiss is our new chair as of a week and a half ago. (laughs) (laughs) So, well, thank you again for being here, Kyle. And uh, we have the pleasure to have Argavan Jeremy who is the founder and senior counsel of Ottawa immigration firm, Jeremy Law. Uh, welcome, Agavan, and thank you very much for being with us today. How are you? I'm very well. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for taking the time. I mean, I'm sure you're pretty busy. When John told me that uh, we had like uh, we had you for a podcast, I was super excited. So thank you, thank you for My taking pleasure. the time. So uh, we've asked you both here today to look into access to justice or what we like to call uh, A2J um, and systemic racism in Canada's immigration system. So we would jump in right away, if you don't mind, uh, starting with the fact that, uh, well, we know that in the world, um, Canada has uh, an international reputation for welcoming all comers. Do you feel that this reputation is accurate or is earned? Well, yes. Um, Canada has, of course, maintained this good reputation for welcoming newcomers. Um, And this is premised on this notion that we have an open and procedurally fair immigration system, uh, that we respect the rule of law, um, that that our officers make reasonable decisions. Um, But in fact, not all newcomers are equally positioned. Um, We have immigrants um, that come through the economic channels. Uh, We have uh, skilled workers. We also have some vulnerable um, uh, migrants, uh, humanitarian and refugee claimants. Um, And in the past couple of years, um, we have seen backlogs and we have seen delays. Um, And this has increased um, a lot of hardship um, and also has the potential to jeopardize the reputation that we have um, when you, for example, have to have a refugee claimant waiting for more than a year just to have an eligibility interview, um, mm-hmm. work permit applications that are pending. So these kinds of um, issues, if they're not addressed, could jeopardize um, our reputation. And similarly, um, differential policies um, that are not justified, such as, for example, um, what we said, what we see in the case of the Afghan versus the Ukrainian yeah. refugees. Um, you know, yes, we do have this wonderful reputation. Mm-hmm. Um, but if we're not careful and not consistent and not just um, and fair in applying our policies, um, these this reputation can be, um, you know, um, harmed mm-hmm. over time. And, and we may, in fact, lose that um, uh, that reputation globally. Last April, the Standing Committee on Citizenship and Immigration called on the Minister of Immigration to extend the special immigration measures afforded to Ukrainian nationals to other regions, 
including mm-hmm. uh, Afghanistan, Yemen, and the Rohingyas. Mm-hmm. And is it the kind of call that actually uh, made a change in the legislation? Well, um, you know, I, I unfortunately, I haven't seen that. Um, and sadly, I don't know that I'm optimistic that this will actually happen. Um, though, um, you know, it's good to, to raise it. It's good to um, continue to push for it. Um, but I don't know that there is the the political will uh, to implement it. And, um, you know, again, I'm not uh, trying to be pessimistic or, mm-hmm. um, you know, I, I think we should continue to uh, exert pressure on, on that point and, and ex- extend the same programs um, because there's no justification for a differential approach, whether it's Ukraine, whether it's Yemen or Afghanistan, at the end of the day, a refugee is a refugee is a refugee. It's not, you know, we're, we're still talking about vulnerable individuals at risk who need protection. Um, and it's not, um, you know, there is no, um, uh, you know, justification or rationale to implement one set of policies for the Ukrainian um, refugees to uh, you know, immediately on an urgent basis with a great uh, momentum to get them to Canada. And uh, yet with the Afghans, um, you know, uh, design the programs in a way that we know uh, will not have the same, uh, you know, uh, process and uh, will not allow that kind of access. So, um, you know, we want to ensure that the communities in Canada feel that we are fair and that, you know, our refugee system will be, um, you know, the legitimacy of it will be at uh, issue if if we don't have uh, even-handedness in the way that the policies are implemented. Yeah. So, Kai, can you tell us a bit like what are common A2J issues in immigration law? My gosh, there are so many. Um, I, I'll sort of land on a few that I think are, are especially important. Uh, a big one right now that's kind of a hot issue in the bar is exclusion of counsel, especially in the new online portals. IRCC has been moving uh, away from paper applications and into online electronic applications over the last few years. And um, there have been some big moves towards that even in the last few weeks. Um, and a lot of those portals uh, make it very difficult to be properly represented by lawyers. And um, so there's a there's an access to justice issue there, especially for people who um, aren't able to self-represent effectively. Um, there's also the issue of legal aid for refugee claims in particular. Um, it's very limited and doesn't cover a lot of things. And that's an ongoing issue for, for decades now that the CBA has been very active in, in lobbying over the years. Is the issue of legal fees in general. Um, there's the issue of non-lawyers practicing immigration law in what is often thought to be a very poor regulatory regime. Um, there's government actively discouraging legal representation throughout its messaging um, to the public. You wouldn't see that in any other area of law, but in immigration law, the government goes out of its way to discourage people from getting legal advice. Um, there are opaque and inconsistent information and rules across um, various sources, various official sources. Um, And there's also just a lack of hard law that makes it very difficult to know what the legal test is in many cases. You're applying for something and you really don't know what is required in order to to meet that test. Um, So lots of really burning issues. 
poor regulatory regime for uh, non-lawyers practicing. There are legal fees. Uh, so, so what is being done by the government? They've certainly made some efforts to make um, the immigration system more accessible. Uh, certainly by publishing information online, where you know things used to be in in paper manuals that you had to order. Um, there are links to all the forms and application packages online. There are portals that people around the world can use, including on mobile. So those are all um, important steps. Um, but the execution of many of those steps has been flawed. Um, you know, an example is the the latest round of online portals have some. Uh, some sort of legal mistakes, I would say, in them that that force you to either misrepresent or or make it impossible to apply for the thing that you're legally qualified to apply for, and they also make it very difficult to uh, be properly represented by counsel. So, um, yes, they are making uh, efforts to make it more accessible, but I think that um, there there are some real flaws in the execution of that. And as the CBA um, mentioned, has been mentioning those flaws, have you have you raised them? Oh yes, <laughs> daily, <laughs> daily. <laughs> okay, well, that's really good to know that because it's also interesting to to know that I mean the the immigration law section from CBA seems to be very active as well uh, into looking into all all those those issues and and talking to the government as well about it. Extremely, yeah, and and you know, in, to, in addition to the sort of formal submissions that we do, um, the issue with online portals in particular became so pervasive uh, that we appointed a coordinator just to deal with the online portals. And she is in contact with IRCC pretty much every day and sometimes several times a day about serious issues with, with the online portals that, that literally prevent people from using them. With your own experience, uh, do you feel that people uh, of different countries of origin receive the same treatment or no? Not even close um, in so many ways. There are obvious ways and less obvious ways. Certainly things like um, the visa requirements that apply to some countries and not others, medical requirements that apply to some countries and not others, uh, processing times being wildly different, um, documentary requirements being different. And then, of course, the approval rates are wildly different between different countries. So, yeah, I, there's not even a pretense of, <laughs> of them getting the same treatment. <laughs> okay, yeah. not even hiding it. Is it known? I mean, is it because that's something you know, because uh, you're working? Uh, I, I think, yeah, yeah, that's a good question. I, I think it I think it is widely understood. And I think even IRCC is aware of this problem. Um, and, you know, there are sometimes arguably justifications for why there's different treatment between different countries, but some of the differences can't be explained by anything other than some cases bias. Um, and so uh, I, I think even IRCC is aware of that problem and is is working on tackling it, but it's very much present in our practices every day. There's currently a parliamentary committee mm-hmm. holding audiences uh, on the dif- differential outcomes in immigration, refugees, and citizenship Canada. So the IRCC. Uh, and one witness, uh, Christian Blanchette, uh, the president of l'Université du Québec à Trois-Rivières. And uh, what he said in front of the uh, parliamentary committee was that, um, to quote him directly, there is inconsistency, unfairness, and notorious contradiction between what elected officials and the state are saying in terms of welcoming and integrating diversity 
and the decisions made by public servants and machinery of government's official. And I kind of feel like it really supports what you're saying. Uh, so I guess that you would agree with such a statement, right? <laughs> yes. Well, I mean, as you said earlier, you know, um, Canada has this image of being universally welcoming. Mm -hmm. um, and this is also projected by our officials. Um, mm -hmm. I, there is uh, that there are definite contradictions in how the system works on the one hand mm -hmm. um, and, and the impact on the applicants and claimants. Um, so, you know, when on the one hand, uh, it's one thing to say, you know, we, we are making these Uh, promises that we yeah. want our country to take in migrants, that we have a fair system, but then look at the way we're implementing them. Um, what are the challenges? You know, mm -hmm. are we keeping those promises, in fact? Um, and so, uh, you know, the Afghan refugee crisis is a good example of mm -hmm. a situation where that has not been the case. Um, you know, um, again, uh, you know, we need to learn um, and we're going to maybe um, uh, look at the Ukrainian example and say, yeah. well, here, you know, here's where we did things differently and how can we, um, you know, take a similar kind of approach um, for other refugee cases. And so, um, you know, there needs to be more accountability, mm -hmm. um, more uh, concern for the impact of policies um, uh, and where there are families and children and lives involved, you know, we have to be Um, you know, aware of, um, for example, extended periods of separation where people are waiting uh, and you have, uh, you know, uh, a family that um, should be um, reunited, but is waiting for a very, very long time. Um, you know, ultimately, um, those kinds of things um, don't jive well with what we are saying um, we intend to do and the promises that we have made. So, Um, you know, that, that and, and decision-making that um, doesn't reflect uh, a fair or mm -hmm. um, anti-racist kind of a lens um, when yeah. we see, for example, refusal rates for uh, various work permits that varies hugely uh, from one country to another. So um, those kinds of issues need to be um, addressed, acknowledged, and openly discussed. I think we do need to have some kind of an overall assessment um, mm -hmm. of our immigration system, like a big picture. How are these applications all being decided? Why are we here? Um, how can we ensure more equitable decision-making? And these issues um, can be addressed. They're not insurmountable. Um, mm -hmm. But we need planning and leadership and consultation with experts, with the CVA, with other stakeholders in the process um, In other words, there is no point in putting in place, um, you know, uh, a regime that is facing issues and not uh, having some kind of a proactive measures that can address those um, those challenges. Um, you know, I, and I don't think this the solution is to have a task force, for example, okay. that's going to take two more years to come up with recommendations. You know, yeah. we need more. <laughs> that <laughs> defeats the purpose. Because the problems are going to just fester right and now. grow in the yeah. mm -hmm. but um, but there needs to be some oversight, maybe an ombudsman, um, where we cannot actually, uh, you know, channel our concerns 
particularly because we continue to have communication challenges um, with IRCC and not have any, even in certain situations, no manager that we can really immediately reach out to. Um, you know, it's almost like an entity behind closed walls. Like we're, you know, we're not mm -hmm. able to, we're not able to penetrate these walls that have been put in place. Um, and that is not conducive to constructive feedback. It's not conducive to, um, to change and improvement. You know, the next steps are actually concrete measures that That's need it. to be implemented. And that takes political will. And it also takes, um, as I said before, planning and leadership and, yeah. um, and involvement also from organizations like the CBA, um, from uh, the, the immigration bar. You know, um, we are here to facilitate and assist in that process. And, and the more that we are able to work together, um, the better that um, we can brainstorm on the solutions. Mm -hmm, yeah, because I know that the CBA is doing this. I know I, I seem like a really fan here, but because I've been following the work of the CBA Immigration uh, Law uh, Committee and they've been uh, reaching out to the government, they've been sending out letters, so they've been uh, doing an incredible work about that. And can you also tell us, because uh, I'm from an NGO background, so I'm always really interested to hear about advocacy. And uh, could you tell us what do you think is the role uh, of advocacy in making immigration law fairer and more accessible? There are a lot of things that, um, that are happening. The CBA obviously takes a very active role in, in lobbying for a fair uh, immigration system that treats applicants equitably. We advocate for better legal aid funding. We advocate for appropriate regulation of non-lawyers. We advocate for um, you know, fairer and more transparent decision-making, especially when it comes to the role of artificial intelligence and things like that in decision-making. Um, so we've been very active on, on all of those fronts. Um, there is also the role in sort of shining a light on these inequities and barriers in the system. Um, sometimes it's through doing access to information requests. And there are a few lawyers who've sort of made it their career to do these requests very regularly. Um, and uh, and sort of expose the inner workings of the decision-making process. Um, and then there are also lawyers who litigate regularly on these issues, and that's maybe the most effective one. And CBA um, has, hasn't done a lot of major interventions um, as an organization, but a lot of individual lawyers are doing this as, as central parts of their practice to challenge these inequities. Okay. Okay. Do you have any uh, any names? <laughs> Because I always oh, find well, investigation so interesting. Or just uh, I mean, <laughs> there there are, there are lots, but I mean, Ar Argavan is Argavan. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's it. <laughs> lots of litigation in this this area, and and um, a number of other lawyers. Oh. I mean, I, I, really dozens of them. It, it's a it's an important part of what we're doing. Mm -hmm. um, I I'm not a litigator myself, but you know, I would say every immigration litigator in this country is contributing to that mm -hmm. fight. Well, thank you. Actually, I wanted you to say Argavan. And what would you say uh, to our listeners who actually uh, are, who are wants to be uh, immigration and refugee lawyers? So um, what do you say they should have at their fingertips uh, when they are working in Canada? Well, um, they need to continue to inform themselves, update themselves, mm -hmm. uh, because we are in this ever-changing landscape um, and uh, we need to share our expertise and 
you know, support each other as colleagues. Um, we're all at the end of the day, we're in this together. Like we don't have all the answers. We face similar challenges. Yeah. So the only way is really to be resourceful, to have mentors, to mentor others when we can. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I would say that overall, like uh, we need the knowledge, we need the resources and this is strong uh, network uh, mm-hmm. at our fingertips. That mm-hmm. is really super important. Um, I mean, in any area of law, but immigration, because there's been so many changes, especially in the last couple of years. Mm-hmm. So I feel like humility as well, the humility to know that you don't know and that you need resources and to ask exactly. your colleagues. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and what do you think uh, they must constantly keep on uh, on their radar? Well, um, they need to keep up the areas um, that they think they can make a difference in. I think, mm-hmm. they can, you know, uh, there are always issues that are emerging. Um, but, uh, you know, when they know that they can advocate or pay more attention to one and, um, you know, they shouldn't be afraid to jump in and tackle them. I think, you know, whether it's like yeah. writing to the minister, um, joining an organization, that um that uh, you know they can be uh collaborating with like-minded colleagues mm-hmm. um discussing an issue even with member of parliament uh speaking to the media all mm-hmm. of those are examples um that we need to keep uh in mind what's important um in terms of what's going on uh what's going on out there that we need to keep on our radar and how we can exert our influence where it's most needed. So those are, those are some of the things I would, I would recommend. Thank you very much. And I would, last question about that would be, uh, why would you say is there basic bread and butter? Well, basic bread and butter is like, <laughs> you know, sort of knowledge and experience. To That's me. it, like right? Going, <laughs> yeah, going hand to hand in hand. You can't do mm-hmm. one without the other, you know. Yeah. Um, we're, we're, we're applying um, our, our knowledge and experience every day to advocate for our clients. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're constantly working on our skill set. Um, and, you know, we're, we're, we know um, we have to also work on the client side manage their expectations, um, help the vulnerable, hear their tough stories. Yeah. Uh, you know, when we have um, clients who've been through trauma, um, mm-hmm. uh, be sensitive and uh, do the client-informed, um, trauma-informed approaches that are needed. Yeah. So um, it's not a black and white. There's not one set approach to it, but I think that we need to be uh, massaging um, our skill set to, you know, customize it to the situation and the needs of the particular client. Yeah, no, definitely. And I heard the one of the very uh, approaches that I really like to hear, the trauma-informed approach. Um, and I'm wondering, because I'm more working in a, um, sexual violence and a gender-based violence uh, in general in my area, but um, so do you also have like this kind of uh, referencing that you can do uh, with your uh, clients, for instance, if you feel like they, they would need some um, uh, a psychological assistance or uh, medical assistance at some point? Uh, is it something also that exists? Um, at your firm or in general, I, I really have no idea. I'm not an immigration lawyer, but I'm, I'm wondering. Of course, of course. Okay, um, so I, I do a lot of uh, refugee work and yeah. um, refugee appeals and litigation. And mm-hmm. in the in my own practice, it is actually also focused very much on gender based okay. uh, violence, um, uh, assisting those who are you know women who are um, uh, fleeing persecution uh, yeah. based on those grounds 
backgrounds. Um, and of course, we um, refer them to psychologists or um, uh, counselors or assistants as, as it may be needed. And then also take very, um, uh, you know, um, take our time with working together to build mm -hmm. trust because the trust is at the foundation of, um, of our ability to hear their stories, um, for them to disclose all the important details of their um, situation, the facts, um, which are, of course, at the heart of every, um, every case. Like the facts are super important that they be disclosed up front, um, that, uh, you know, that, that we get the complete picture up front um, and make sure that, the decision maker also can grasp uh, the significant uh, events that the person has um, experienced. Totally. And I kind of feel like I could make an, an entire other podcast just on uh, your technique, your best practices on a trauma-informed uh, uh, interview or also how to build trust with your clients, especially in a GBV uh, cases. So very interesting. Maybe I will, maybe we'll follow up later. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> well, thank you. So, um, we, uh, John, I'll just make a break here because. Thank you both very much for those very insightful answers. So, I waited just long enough to make this a little bit uncomfortable because, uh, well, I believe that waiting is very much a thing in Canada, especially in the immigration uh, system. At what point would you say that waiting becomes an access issue? Um, that's a really, really good question. In immigration law, I think the issue of delays does really go to um, the administration of justice. And it's an issue I feel really strongly about. I had the privilege of addressing the House of Commons Standing Committee a couple of months ago on, on the issue of delays and backlogs. And one of the points that I tried to make to the committee was that when it comes to immigration law, waiting Or delays aren't really about waiting. They're really about the loss of rights. Um, and because a lot of immigration law is sort of time specific, um, you gain and lose eligibility for certain things over time, depending on your work experience, depending on your age, depending on your children's age, um, depending on when you did your studies. And so um, the, the, timing of things happening actually impacts your eligibility for things. So for example, um, if you file an application when your children are 21, and let's say it takes a year for immigration to open that file and do a completeness check on it, and they decide, oh, there's some trivial thing missing, and they send it back to you. Now your kids are 22, and you can never include them. They're, you're, they're done. And there's no fix to that. Um, that's a simple example, but there are, there are dozens of examples like that where people lose critical rights and there is no fix. So, and, and you can't do anything. You just close the window. Uh, that's right. There's really there's really no remedy for that other than some some very sort of vague humanitarian and compassionate uh, grounds. Um, but um, their approval rates are are extremely low and, and very difficult. There's also a fairness issue and that people are paying for a service and not really getting that service within a reasonable amount of time. Um, and IRCC actually went to the point of opting out of some of the provisions of the Service Fees Act, specifically to avoid accountability for long, long waiting times on some types of applications. 
we know we have many people that are on the so-called waiting list to access Canada and to access in, uh, some status for immigration. Do people who are on this waiting list have any access to the Canadian justice system and to its protection? It, it, it's limited. I mean, you know, if it's something like a returned application, really, you know, you can, you can sometimes advocate behind the scenes to get something reopened if, if you can prove that the thing that was supposedly missing wasn't missing or wasn't required. Um, but really, the federal court is the only real remedy, and it's a pretty limited remedy. You know, if it's just a matter of delay, yes, you can go to the federal court and seek an action in mandamus uh, to try to force a decision. But the courts are very hesitant to get involved in these cases unless there's a very case-specific delay rather than just an overall systemic slowness. Um, so if, if your case in particular has been singled out for for poor treatment and has taken longer than it sh longer than the normal processing times and longer than other similar applications. Yes, sometimes the court will intervene, um, but for the most parts, if, if things are just slow, there's really not much you can do. And regarding the cost of it, um, because we know that to to apply to those uh, those legal processes that are very long, sometimes they are very also time consuming, uh, and we might also think that some people would not have the means, uh, the financial means, to apply for it. Uh, do they have access to legal assistance? There, there really isn't for that sort of thing. Um, yeah, there, there are very limited resources. There, there are nonprofit groups that try to fill some of that breach. Members of parliament sometimes get involved to try to help, although their ability to help is pretty limited as well. So yeah, really, there aren't a lot of resources for that. The challenges and at times helplessness that um, both the applicants and immigration lawyers feel when we cannot communicate effectively um, or actually talk to a real human human being about uh, an important issue or um, significant delay in a particular file. Um, and, you know, there is zero uh, transparency in that respect. You know, we have to rely on access to information requests. We have to wait further and believe it or not, go through our member of parliament. It has become a, a new development now that immigration lawyers themselves cannot reach uh, IRCC managers, but have to go through member of parliament who has contacts in IRCC to be able to tap into those, to be able to get an update on a file. I mean, that is what it has come to in terms of- Seriously. Uh, yes, for Afghan refugee files, for other files where we are desperate okay. and we have no yeah. other way to reach- an actual manager, um, you know, we, we, we go through um, our MPs and, uh, and then they ask for a consent form to be signed and the client consents. And then it's through them that finally we may be able to get uh, an update okay. uh, through a, a, a manager or somewhere, you know? Okay, yeah, um, so that, that's why the wall, uh, inside the wall. Yeah, I see that. The wall see inside it's the wall is... Yeah, it's, an, it's an actual maze. <laughs> Um, but, but going back a bit to um, to uh, the famous IRCC, so Immigration, Refugees and Citizenship Canada, and uh, mainly transparency that I would like to, to tackle a little bit with you. Uh, you did mention that, for instance, uh, there, there were some lawyers who were spending their career making some um, access to information requests. Um, and you've been yourself, uh, you've been you've been working a lot uh, regarding the 
yeah, regarding uh, access to justice and, and what the uh, IRCC is doing. Um, and would you give uh, the IRCC a passing grade for transparency? <laughs> uh, I mean, honestly, no. I, I think there is a lack of transparency on a number of levels, um, certainly in the day-to-day decision-making. Um, the decisions that you get from IRC, IRCC often lack meaningful reasons or explanations, and you're left to do access to information requests, to try to get copies of the officer's notes, to figure out why they refused an application or why they made a certain decision. Um, And then when you make those ATIP requests, they're very slow to respond and sometimes they redact a lot of information. Um, You know, we had an example recently where a colleague uh, sought uh, a list of the immigration program managers at the major visa offices. And sometimes we need to contact them in emergencies or something's really gone sideways and outside of the normal course of business. There's really no other way to deal with it other than contacting the program manager. So IRCC actually went to the point of releasing the full list with all the names and email addresses redacted. So it's basically a five page blank document. Um, and someone bothered to do that. <laughs> <laughs> someone did that. Yeah. And someone thought yeah. that will be useful. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So I see the, the, not a passing grade here. I don't think we're even to the, I'm afraid not. Yeah. No, I can understand why you have a reason though. That's good. And because yes. I've, and I must say, I've heard this story. Um, I, I mean, it was last week. I think someone was telling me that they received a, like the reason it was others, like just other, it was just, it was, and it was no other thing, just other. Ultimately, um, decision makers have discretion. And so the decisions they're making is on this range, uh, the standard of reasonableness. Um, so we need to ensure that we understand those decisions, that there's transparency, um, transparency rather in public implementation, but also, um, you know, fairness of the process so that people are, um, you know, ultimately um, receiving a just outcome. Mm-hmm. Um, so very simple example, if it's possible to record an interview, an officer is doing an interview, um, and he can record it and provide that to the court or to the applicant, mm-hmm. why, why rely on his notes uh, and summarize them and say, well, I- I'm sorry, we don't have, um, you know, we don't have a recording. I mean, that that's just a very concrete example of where, um, uh, you know, it- it's not fair um, to do that. Who are uh, the IRCC managers uh, legally accountable to? I mean, that's a really tough one. And, and I-, I don't mean to sound too harsh here, but I honestly think that they do their best not to be accountable to anyone. Um, certainly not to applicants or their counsel or even the public. And maybe they consider that they're only accountable to the minister or to parliament. Um, but there's very little transparency or oversight or accountability when it comes to the, the actual users of the immigration system. And, and the courts are really one of the only effective mechanisms to seek accountability. How would you say that they typically react when the access to justice concerns are raised, for instance, by the CBA? Um, so I would say that at the corporate level, at the sort of, um, headquarters level, I think IRCC's alive to these issues. Um, I think the challenges at the operational level, um, and to be fair, these offices are dealing with, uh, staggering numbers of applicants, um, 
often working in very challenging circumstances. So this is not a personal slight against them. It's more about a culture of um, sort of circling the wagons and and um, and not being accountable to the the users of the system or to the people paying the bills. Um, and so, um, yeah, I think you know the, this example of of hiding their contact information is is really just an example of that. It's a, it's avoiding having to deal with the consequences of their own decisions. And how much transparency uh, should we expect from government agencies in general? Would you say? Yeah, I, I mean, unquestionably, a lot more. And and you know, we can look at lots of other government departments and agencies that have made big efforts to improve accountability and transparency. It's not set in stone, and it can change. Um, independent civilian oversight of the police is an example of this. It's an institution that, in the past, has maybe been very resistant to change and. Um, and over time has built in additional accountability mechanisms, and there are many others like that. And now from the IRCC more specifically? I mean, it's a good question. Um, and it, it's challenging for IRCC just because the volume is so huge. Um, and so, you know, I don't know if I really have the answer to what the right mechanism is, but I don't, there's no inherent reason IRCC can't implement some of the same accountability and transparent measure, transparency measures of the other government departments and agencies. It's really just about political will, in my view, uh, and, and requires a little bit of creativity just because of the, uh, the numbers of, of people that they, uh, that they deal with in their work. It's a very strange area of law in that what we call law is not necessarily legislation or even regulations. Sometimes it's not even ministerial instructions. Sometimes it's what IRCC put on their Facebook page this morning, or you know, it, it, things like that can can actually impact the outcome of applications and the the test you have to meet when you're applying for something. Um, so, yes, having a having clear guidelines that are consistent. Um, and updated in real time, but in a way that everyone can access clearly and everyone can find the information, um, that's really, really important for making the system fair and accessible. I think they're changing at the corporate level. I feel like, you know, the people that we deal with in Ottawa, the the minister and, and his office and, and some of the senior people, I think they get these issues and they're concerned about them. You know, for example, IRCC now has their own anti-racism initiative internally that's collaborating with our anti-racism committee. Um, and there's a bunch of work happening. The problem is at the operational level. And I really feel like there's a bit of a, there's a, a slow filtering down of, uh, mm -hmm. of that mentality. Um, and there's just, there really is this like, circle the wagons mentality within the operational part of the department um, where they, they really seem to fear accountability. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Something like that. You know, the notion that immigration is beneficial to our country um, and, you know, that we are indeed a country of, um, immigrants is very well recognized um, by most Canadians. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we pride ourselves in being generous, um, uh, committing um, ourselves to the human rights and international law, mm -hmm. and helping those in need. Um, yeah. But there's still this notion in policymaking um, that we need to somehow balance what we give as opposed to what we gain from 
our immigration and refugee system. And um, so this I would call the politics of immigration that sometimes, unfortunately, uh, interferes. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, um, uh, and it has in the past as well in differentiating and placing more value on some migrants mm-hmm. uh, rather than others. And depending on, for example, how they made their way to Canada. Um, but someone who immigrates, uh, you know, through an economic category is not in any way more valuable to Canada um, mm-hmm. than, than, for example, a refugee claimant who becomes a protected person and eventually becomes a permanent resident. Um, so th- that is a, a false uh, way or a, a myth in a, in a way mm-hmm. that, yeah. um, that should not be perpetuated. All pathways to permanent residency and citizenship are, are legitimate. At the end of the day, they're valuable. And, um, you know, refugees um, are extremely worthy to Canada and even more so mm-hmm. given that you know, they have a commitment, they have families, they are bringing their uh, diverse experiences. And so um, I think we have to learn from our history and not repeat the same mistakes again. Um, you know, for example, the exclusionary policies, um, the, the overtly racist Chinese um, mm-hmm. head tax. And those kinds of things. So we, we really have to be careful and, um, you know, uh, be mindful of those false um, notions that mm-hmm. are still somehow seeping through in through the political channels. Can you uh, tell us a bit more what are the origins of letting the Canadian economy dictate immigration policy? For sure. And and yes, definitely it's been the era of the niche immigration program lately. So yeah, I actually wrote my master's thesis on on pretty much this topic uh, a long time ago. Um, so some things have evolved since then. But, but basically, um, where this economic imperative comes from was a shift in the 60s and 70s, moving to what they called a human capital model, where um, we started selecting immigrants Supposedly on a purely objective basis, it was, it was the intention was to get away from the sort of um, ethnic and national focus of our immigration system uh, earlier um, to focus on uh, sort of a basket of qualifications that would um, give us an idea of how well people would integrate into our economy. Um, in the late 2000s, early 2010s, we kind of shifted again, um, still an economic model, but we ended up downloading most selection to employers and schools and the idea that employers are the best position to determine what skill sets are needed in the economy. Um, and that's more or less the system we have now with some, some tweaks. Um, we've also downloaded some of that decision-making to provinces and regions and even individual municipalities. Um, and um, so in many ways, the federal government isn't even, even really making most of those decisions now. And do you believe that this approach uh, has led directly to issues relating to access to justice, leaving immigrants beholden to their employers? Yeah, ab- absolutely. Um, making immigrant selection dependent on employers and schools and communities, but especially employers, um, it adds a layer of legal vulnerability. Because if your whole status in Canada and your path to permanent residence depend on your employer, You're not going to assert your rights against that employer, um, you, even your employment law rights, and you're not going to seek redress for uh, for mistreatment. And we see this all the time, especially in lower wage occupations. Um, you know, while the the courts can intervene on employment law issues that arise, they can't really get rid of that structural uh, vulnerability. Um, so we have this underclass of workers who 
technically have all kinds of legal rights, but in practical terms, aren't able to exercise them because of that vulnerability. So you've been in this profession for a long time now. And uh, could you tell us what are some of the most uh, creative solutions to A to J issues that you have seen uh, in this profession and across the country? Yeah. So there, there are people doing some, some interesting things to try to promote access to justice. And there are the sort of traditional ways of doing pro bono work and, and working through nonprofits. And there's lots of that happening. But there are also people who are... Um, you know, are working to unbundle legal services to make them more affordable to people, um, working with self-represented applicants in different ways, doing self-help courses um, and uh, things like that to, um, to support people who maybe need a little bit of support but don't necessarily need full representation. So there's all kinds of different models like that that people are experimenting with. My predecessor as, as chair of the section, Mark Holthy, um, and, and his firm, um, they're, they're a great example of, of uh, trying to do things differently. And so they run sort of uh, almost like a training school for express entry, which is one of the major immigration processing systems that people have to interact with. And so they, they run courses and they have self-help guides, and then they'll let people go and do it themselves and come back and then review their applications. Um, they're not the only people doing innovative things, but they're a great example of, of someone doing things really differently. And um, so I think, I hope that people continue to experiment with things like that. I'm sure you didn't say it because because you're shy, but I mean, also looking at what the CBA immigration law section is doing, uh, I think it's also a good idea to, if like our listeners want to stay tuned of what is happening and what, because I know you write often letters, uh, you are very active. Uh, so I think if our listeners can have a look at what is happening on the immigration law section of the CBA, it's also a good way to, to stay tuned and to be, to, to monitor what's happening in Canada regarding access to justice. Absolutely. We've been pretty we've been pretty active for a long time on uh, advocating for legal aid advocating for um you know for accountability all of these things are, are things that are very top of mind for the cba we hope you've enjoyed this episode of the every lawyer on access to justice please feel free to hit subscribe and share it with your friends and colleagues if you would like to comment on anything you've heard in this podcast please contact us directly via cba.org. And don't forget to look at the Immigration Law section page on CBA. Also, please note that this episode was recorded in DRC. Um, so I apologize if there has been some internet connection that was bad or if you've heard some uh, noises on the background.